storm is over, I'll be standing when the storm is over. For those of you who weren't here for Gospel Ensemble concert yesterday, you missed it. It was great. Made me cry more than once. Uh, when the storm is over, I'll be standing. We know in the midst of all the storms, though, sometimes, sometimes when we feel tossed and turned around and we're not sure what's happening, sometimes we get so scared that we're not going to be able to tread water and survive ourselves that we might push someone else down in order to keep our head above water. And I want you to hear what the song says and what Cassandra was asking you to do was to stand together. We'll be standing. When the storm is over, it's not whether I survived or whether you survived or whether this group survived and that group didn't survive, but whether we all survive. God calls us to be standing for all of creation. And sometimes when it just comes so fast and furious, we get scared. We get afraid and we just do things that aren't helpful. They aren't helpful to us and they aren't helpful to others. And it's hard to even hear that scripture passage we heard today. God will protect you and keep you safe from all dangers. What does that mean when the storm is so loud? Yes. God will protect you now and always wherever you go. What does it mean when the storm is so loud? Can we be standing still together and work to make sure everybody is standing together, not just some and we leave others behind? I responded to phone calls from a couple of our teachers in our congregation this week who had students not show up in class this week. They didn't show up in class because either a relative of theirs had been taken out of their home or they were not coming to class in solidarity of those neighbors whose relatives had been taken out of their home due to immigration status as searches were made this week in Houston. The teachers were just trying, struggling with how am I a teacher? in my class when so many of my students are gone. What does it mean that these children don't seem to matter as much as the other children? And the storm is going. And the question is, how will we be standing with one another? I praise God for those teachers who walk right in the middle of all of it and try to be Jesus even if they don't talk about their faith. Try to be Jesus right in the middle of that classroom right now. Each and every day, even before this. Even before this. We've been talking about what exceptionalism has meant historically in our country and the dangers of it. The dangers of what it meant when Anglo-Saxon history came to our shores in the form of Puritanism and combined this special chosenness that really rested upon the heads of only white folk and also only Christian folk and how those got merged in a whole unholy way in our history. And because of that merger, we were able to do atrocious things to Native Americans, atrocious things to black persons in the form of slavery. Because once you buy in to the fact that whiteness is exceptional or required to be exceptional, once you buy in to you are chosen from God in a special and exceptional way that no one else is, once you buy into that, then you can do ugly things. And you can cause a lot of harm. It's interesting to me that that definition of whiteness is expanded over our history to include different groups of people. 
And I think part of it now is a language requirement of English as whiteness. And what does it mean to be able to be a part of the power structures of our country? Oh, gracious, the storm is coming. The storm is here. And right in the middle of it, will we stand together? It's an important question. I remember a person who was killed, but in his killing, some people thought it was okay. They thought it was okay, you know, because he was a criminal. They thought it was okay because he did things like drink. They thought it was okay because he did things like, like sex. Not only did he like sex, he liked sex with other men. So they thought it was kind of okay he got killed because he drank. He even smoked. He drank, he smoked, he went to bars, he had sex. So this person, oh goodness, he got killed. Well, you know, he must have done something to deserve it. See, that's the kind of same thinking that slavery thrived on. Because it said what is, is the way it's supposed to be, so it must be the way that God wanted it. What is, is the way it's supposed to be, because that must mean it is because God wants it that way. So, if we have slaves, it's because God intended for them to be slaves, which is not what Jesus taught us. He taught us how to have freedom. So, this kid who got killed should have been killed because God must have intended it because he was drinking and smoking and having sex with people of the same gender. And you know it was illegal in our country for those same gender people to have sex with each other at this time. So not only was he doing all those things, he was a criminal. You may know his name, Matthew Shepard. You may think it was okay for him to be killed. Some people did. That it was okay to take him out and put him, beat him up and put him on a barbed wire fence and leave him there to die. What does it mean that his exceptional whiteness was then dingy or tainted because of all of this criminality and other aspects of his behavior? What does it mean? Is it okay that he gets killed because he had these parts of his character that weren't as pure as somebody else's? You see, the defense they gave was homosexual panic. Got that? Homosexual panic. You can be so afraid you're caused to kill somebody. Hear that? You can be so afraid you're called to kill somebody. Homosexual panic. That means a gay person or a lesbian person goes into space that's really supposedly only straight space and does something that they're not supposed to do. I don't know. Buy someone a beer. And because of that, it's okay to kill them. If you believe in homosexual panic defense, you go into the wrong place and do the wrong thing, and it's your punishment to be dead. Years later, I went to a march at Lakeside Assembly off of Lake Erie, which is a conservative place for Christians to gather. And being my usual self, I decided to go right there to be gay. So I went to Lakeside Assembly, and as a part of our march or pilgrimage or whatever you wanted to talk about it being at that point in time, they had created these silhouettes of stories of people who'd been kicked out of the church for one reason or another reason, usually because they were LGBT, 
in one form or fashion, or supported LGBT people. You kick you out for that, too, in the Methodist church. And so as the pilgrimage was to start, I was handed this silhouette, Matthew Shepard, to walk alongside that. Thought it was telling, and I carried his name with honor and thought along the way of, well, what does it mean to carry his name? But there are people who want to kill me for who I love. It was in Ohio, a conservative part of the world, but you know, Jesus tended to go places like that. So we need to, too. Why do we rush to negate or denigrate another person's life? Why do we focus on the manner in which they were killed as if the manner of their death can sum up the meaning of their life? Why must we sift through a victim's past in order to find or create a narrative in our own heads that fit the stereotype or bias that we have about a group of people so that we can justify othering them. You know, obviously this is the way that they were going to die anyway. It was raining lightly. It's beginning to get dark. He was wearing a hoodie that is not thug wear. He was carrying Skittles and a can of iced tea because he liked Skittles and iced tea. Some man he does not know comes up to him. A gun is displayed, an altercation ensues, a shot is fired, and a 17-year-old boy is dead on the ground. His crime? Some say it was for carrying Skittles and iced tea. Because, you know, if you take Skittles and iced tea and mix them with some cough syrups, you can create an intoxicant. It, it's a truth. It's called drink. It's a truth. Drink. D-R-A-N-K. It wasn't in his blood. But his toxicology didn't support that. Some say he was guilty of smoking marijuana and taking pictures of himself and posting them on Facebook, shooting the bird. Being 17. Some say perhaps it was because he was walking too fast. Others say perhaps he was walking too slow. Some say it's because he was walking suspiciously. I say he was a kid trying to get home. Walking around in the world in a black man's body. And that body had no value. I agree with the doctor, Reverend Dr. Brown Douglas, that there is no doubt that guns of our stand-your-ground culture are today's crosses. 
And I believe that if you listen closely, you can hear the echoes of crucify them. Crucify them. The echoes, these, these calls of lobbyists for these laws as they proclaim that we must protect ourselves from those who are encroaching upon our rights. Well, on the other side of those self-righteous proclamations are human bodies that are believed to be a threat to the rights conferred to others by exceptionalism. Unquestionably, the laws of stand-your-ground culture reflect a community's desire to protect its way of life from those that they have found threatening. These laws negate the very humanity of those deemed the oppositional other. Those for whom the inalienable rights were never intended for. These are the bodies on the other side of the stand your ground gun. And they are the crucified of the 21st century. It shouldn't be that easy to take someone else's life. To do such a thing certainly does not reflect God's plan. God is one who creates life. The one who gives life is never the commissioner of taking life. And just like the religious and political leaders, uh, the Pontius Pilate and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, I believe that we collaborate in today's crucifixions. Our systems epitomize humanity's opposition to all that God stands for. He gives life. It should not be so easy to take someone's life. When I think of Matthew Shepard and I think of homosexual panic, I think of all of the laws that we have on the books now. And I might call them black panic. I might call them that because they have been targeted to end up with what we have right now as rates of mass incarceration. They have been targeted. And it might be called that. It shouldn't be so easy to kill someone. It shouldn't be so easy to put so huge a percentage of a population behind bars. It shouldn't be so easy to see anyone as not being human either because they don't speak English or because they have an accent or because their skin color is different from mine or whatever their political beliefs are, whatever the issue is with them, it should not be so easy to dismiss them as not being human. I love it that Archbishop Desmond Tutu has this quote, a person is a person because he recognizes others as persons. That's actually a challenge. A person is a person because he recognizes others as persons. 
when you don't recognize someone else's humanity, right. you have become inhumane. Right. When you don't recognize people as persons, then you stop being human. That's a pretty big challenge. Tutu goes on to say that he cannot expect folks to see his humanity if he doesn't see the humanity of other folks. He understands that the very key to the struggle towards a better life starts within each of us. He knows and practices the scriptures about love. He refuses to debase himself by giving in to the very understandable temptation to objectify and dehumanize any person to make them less than human. I walked up to the Pride Parade float and was immediately horrified in Chicago. It was our church's float, and the creative people had got together and put the float together, and I thought, who on earth thought of this? I have my standards. Who on earth thought of this for our parade float in the Chicago parade? When I got there and I saw the float, and I was just, I didn't want to get on it. And all it had was this big word on both sides of the bottom of the float that said, human, on both sides. And I thought, it isn't enough. Human. It just isn't enough. And as I got on the float and I float and marched with the parade through the streets of Chicago, I started to get how many of these people weren't sure of their humanity and how many of these people were treated as if their humanity didn't count. Just human with the right to breathe with the right to be, with the right not to be killed too easily. Human. Later, when I got the chance, I had this great, wonderful, brilliantly new idea, which I was sure no one else had thought of, which was that queer people and black people should work together for justice. <laughs> I'm sure no one else had ever thought of it. I knew a lot of people spent time trying to keep us apart, but, you know. So here I was going to a major worldwide assembly of about 5,000 people from around the world, and uh, I thought, what can we do to help this happen more easily? We invited an academic scholar, Dr. James Cohn, to come and preach for our worship service, which was typically the LGBT worship service at the event, because they were the outsiders of this event. By law, they were criminals still. And so Dr. James Cohn came, and as a great preacher he is, and the, because of his name, all of a sudden, all of the bishops from Black Methodists for Church Renewal started saying, I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. And we got to the event. We got to the service. It was called the Love Your Neighbor service. And as we got to the service, uh, we had seven black bishops that were going to come in, bring themselves into that gay space, sharing their power and their privilege with those who were excluded at that point in time in that church history and still to this day are excluded. And when they came into that space, I was told that I was supposed to pray for them and with them before the processional. And I looked at Derek Spiev and my board member who told me this, who is a black person. I said, Derek, are you sure this little white boy is supposed to pray for seven black United Methodist bishops <laughs> who have seen lynchings in their lifetime 
who have been assaulted for civil rights, whose stories are the stories in our textbooks. Well, Derek, let's think about this again. I did not pray. By the time I got there, they already prayed, and I said, thank God. <laughs> On any given Sunday in Black Baptist Church, you will hear someone say, take us to the cross, preacher. Yes? That's because going to the cross, we know that Jesus understands our lives, our sufferings, our deaths. What I take issue with is sometimes the pastor leaves us at the cross. They glorify the suffering and God does not sanction the suffering of human beings. I believe God calls us to an understanding of both the cross and the empty tomb. You see, because the empty tomb is a reminder that God is triumphant over the evil and death of the cross. I believe that the empty tomb proves that the instruments of evil and of death don't get to have the last word. There's a danger in trying to make meaning out of senseless deaths. What God through resurrection points to, however, is not the meaning of Jesus' death, but the meaning of Jesus' life. In the resurrection stories, Jesus tells his disciples to go back to Galilee and wait for him to come. He doesn't tell them, go back to Golgotha. Jesus instructs them to go back to those where they are lost and least. He instructs them to go back to the place where his ministry began. He instructs them to go back where his ministry still is. He instructs them to go back to where our ministry is. Where our ministry is. When I stand at the table and remind us that Jesus turned his ministry over to us, I am speaking what I believe to be a resurrected truth. If our agenda is Jesus, we are to live resurrected lives. We're supposed to live lives of justice. We are to teach others the resurrection stories. Those who have been marginalized on the edges of society because the resurrection is nothing less than a re refusal to allow the final verdict of some person's life to be a crucifying verdict. We can and we must offer life even in the midst of crucifying death. When we as resurrected people don't challenge systems, when we don't advocate for justice, we are saying it is okay for others to act like one life matters more than another. We say that mutuality, compassion, and respect for each other is optional. 
we say it's okay that stand-your-ground culture can disengage perpetrators from their humanity and victims from their lives. Because the person on the other side of the gun is not seen as human or has a life that's worth living. Brown Douglas says, until the myth of exceptionalism is called out and its debilitating impact on America's culture and values is recognized, our nation will forever be trapped in a web of sin because as we have talked about over the last couple of weeks, exceptionalism has a way of reinventing itself over and over again. Our nation is still divided by this war. The salvation of our nation is dependent on the myth of exceptionalism being addressed and eliminated once and for all. God's justice means a restoration of the sacred dignity of all lives, of all people. And it begins with the restoration of the sacred dignity of the crucified class of people, those on the margins of our society. We know what that's like. The justice of God manifests through us as people of faith. And it begins with welcoming and protecting the least and the lost. So we have asked you, will you stand with us to affirm the sacredness of life? Will you stand with us as we try to live resurrected lives and take action to bring about the justice of God? The storm is here. Will you stand together? The storm is here. Will we stand together? The storm is here. Will we stand together? Let us be standing together. God's with us in the middle of it. Won't we stand together? Amen. Mm -hmm.